welcome to the Hippie Greg podcast. So with the new format, we're going to start the podcast off with a quote. There's a book that I really enjoy called Vagabonding by Rolf Potts. It's about world travel and getting out of the nine to five. And there's a lot of good quotes in that book, but there's one of them that really jumps out to me. And it is the value of your travels does not hinge on how many stamps you have in your passport when you get home. And the slow, nuanced experience of a single country is always better than the hurried, superficial experience of 40 countries. So today's interview is going to signify that quote. And what I really enjoy about that quote is that when we travel, a lot of times people want to take in all the sites and post all these pictures online and share with the world everything they're doing. And there's nothing wrong with that, but... I find that in our society that we tend to focus more on the other people and sharing and possibly showing off a little what we're doing and it has its drawbacks. When we travel like that to get the the best picture and do all these things, we a lot of time miss the small little details of immersing ourselves in a culture and really staying one place instead of going to a million places. So today's podcast is about my friend David, who traveled to Tanzania. He basically winged it, quit a really good corporate job, and sold everything that he owned and moved to Tanzania. A little background on how I met David. So back to, it would be in 2016, I moved to Florida to take a job running a small aircraft charter operation. And I also started doing Uber. I took on various uh, side gigs while I was down there and it was basically a hustle to make it type of thing down there. And so what ended up happening is I thought that I was gonna have a place to stay while I was down there and that kind of fell through. It was going to be provided by my employer and that didn't happen. So in Naples, Florida, in the middle of December with nowhere to go and about another week to two weeks in the place that I was staying that I was set up with when I moved there. And so I'm a big couch surfer. For anybody that's not familiar with couch surfing, there's a website called uh, couchsurfing.org. And on that website, you can basically find a place to stay anywhere in the world. People will offer their couches, beds, place on the floor, even a spot to sleep in. I've slept in a boat before, but there's a lot of different ways that you can travel. And this is one of them that it's a way to travel on the cheap, but also to really meet a lot of unique and interesting people. And I've probably stayed at 15 to 20 different places I've hosted. I absolutely love it. I've met nothing but the best people and some good friends through that site. If you're interested in those things, it's www.couchsurfing.org. And so when I went down to Naples, I figured that I would reach out to somebody on couch surfing just to make a new friend. And the first person that I pulled up was actually David. And so on my way down there, I reached out to them and him and his wife and he got back with me said you know you can't stay the night here but we're going out to watch the football game and so I'm like cool I'll go check out the football game and and meet some new people and I went and met up with them ate some food and watched the game and it happened to be the Packers Lions game from 2016 and anybody that's familiar with that that game ended on one of the most epic Hail Marys I've ever seen where Aaron Rodgers hit Richard Rodgers for a 61-yard touchdown. It was a very 
fluke play and a really amazing throw. And so that's kind of the experience that I had when I got to meet David. And so not having a place to stay down there, a couple days after that, I reached out to him. I'm like, hey, dude, what do you think of having a roommate? And so he had to run it by his wife. She initially said no. I kind of kept up on it. And a little bit later, I hit him up again because I really didn't have any other options. And he seemed like a really good dude. And so what ended up happening is I reached back out to him. He's trying to convince his wife, Katie. And finally, she said, well, how about I meet him? And so David reached out to me and said that. I was like, all right, cool. I'm I'm gold here. If, uh, if I get a chance to meet her, I'm sure that things are going to work out. I'm easy going and a good roommate to have. Get in touch with them. We meet up. She likes me. Everything goes well. I end up moving in with them. And I stayed with them for three months while I was in Naples. It was a great place to stay. Got to experience what it was like living around a newborn child that had a two-month-old baby. And so you get to see the dynamics of that. So spent a lot of time with them while I was there. Well, in the meantime, a couple of years later, I'm planning a trip out west. And they moved up to Tacoma, Washington. In my travels, I knew that I was going to be visiting with them. And David had this story about his trip to Tanzania. I'm like, perfect. I can have somebody that I know very well and that has a really amazing experience. And I can use that for the podcast and do an interview with him. So here we are in his basement and we're going to talk about the trip to Tanzania. And here we go. Hope you enjoy the interview. First, I would like to have you tell me uh, background on yourself and then how this uh, trip to Tanzania came to be. I grew up in the suburbs of Houston. I think that while I was growing up, I got involved into some counterculture things in the hardcore and punk scene, but I still went pretty straightforward, uh, upper middle class, white, American, went to college, got my degree and then started in a corporate career path. And at some point I wanted to know the other side of that story. I wanted to to know what the other things about the human condition that make us tick that I just wasn't getting with my own frame of mind and my lens that I was looking at it through. That's where I really started digging into making a big change to, to do that. Why Tanzania? I was, you know, doing my office job where I was working about two or three hours a day and shooting around the internet for four hours a day. Sounds <laughs> and, pretty common. Yeah. I somehow got to, actually I, I went to an organization called World Teach and I interviewed for a position in American Samoa and in the South Pacific and I just wanted to go as far away as possible and, and kind of throw myself out there. One of the things about that place, I, I mean the interview went fine, but they essentially said this is too much for you at one time, like having never been remote they said it was like an island you know and it's going to be they want someone that was committed to this t teaching position that I would be doing that got scratched but then I, once I realized in my head I was like if I can be okay with American Samoa I can probably be okay with anywhere so I just started going through forums and message boards and looking for any like nonprofits that that needed help and I found one that had a nice website I emailed them and said, hey, do you guys need someone to help you with your marketing? Because that's what my previous career was. Um, and they said, sure. And I said, when can I come over? And they said, whenever you want. They helped me you know, get through that visa process, uh, which really wasn't that hard. 
you know, I think the hard part was telling my, my parents and quitting a job that I had gone to school for and was making pretty good money at. And I'd actually been offered a promotion uh, to be in charge of the entire United States for what I was doing as a 6,000 person company. So it wasn't like a, a small deal. And they called me in and that's actually when I told them because I was kind of pressured. Uh, I didn't know if I was like, if I tell them now, am I going to like miss out on all these paychecks? Because I knew I wasn't going get, to be getting paid. Um, it was going to be doing volunteer stuff. So I was, I was trying to save up as much as I could. I didn't want to quit prematurely. And knowing my flight, it was like June or something. And my flight was leaving at the end of August. And so I, it was really hard holding that, that excitement in. Oh, I can uh, imagine. Yeah, like just not telling anyone. I, did, I didn't want to tell my parents because they're just like another source of stress for me so you know like what are you doing why are you doing that like what are you going to do for money and well, you shouldn't I can't believe you're doing this and I worked so hard for you to get to where you right. so I just didn't want to deal with it um, so my plan was to tell them the absolute last moment but at you know they called me in for this meeting to talk with me about this new position they were making and I was you know I couldn't wait any longer on them I couldn't have them like build part of the company's future because it was a new position into you know my future so I was like actually you know I'm going to be leaving the company and you know going to do some work in, in Tanzania and they were like well if it was another company we could offer you more money but we really can't compete with doing that sort of thing and, and leaving the country and, and all that so that summer was was really it was just filled with that like nervous anticipation right it was filled with am i actually going to go through with it um and how will i live what what will my money situation be like because so many of that so much of that is tied to money when you've never done it before right you're you're really worried about the financials of it i have people at my job coming up and you know saying like i you know it takes a lot of balls to do something like that and I realized, like, the more people told me that, you know, these are all older people. I was in my mid, late, I think it was 26, um, mid-20s. And the more people told me that, they were, they were all a little bit older. And I didn't really think about it at the time. But giving up this career that I had, at that point, I'd been working in for five years, you know, straight out of college, literally hitting a reset button. I sold every, I sold my record collection. And these are... Records. I have one record that was like one out of fifteen hand hand numbered from like one of my favorite bands. But hey, you know I get two hundred bucks for it. So I sold everything, all my furniture, and my my company actually surprised me with a with an eighty liter Osprey backpack. Everything in my life I put into that backpack, and that was kind of where I started with it. That's great. So once you got there, did you go to American Samoa first then and get experience or did you go? I, I didn't the, I didn't get the, the position in American Samoa. So it was more of a springboard, springboard for me mentally. I quit my job and then I remember I was doing a little fundraiser for, it was the place I was working was Amani Center for Street Children. I wasn't exactly sure what my role was going to be. It was, it was all very off-the-cuff type of stuff. I put together a little fundraiser and went knocking on doors all around Austin, which is where I was living at the time, at different businesses, asking if they wanted to donate a gift certificate or something to a raffle to raise money for the organization before I left. 
and I went back, I think it was my last week of work, and I had this big raffle. I had gotten like 35 different gifts and raised like $2,000, $3,000. And then that's when I got the, the backpack to go. But I went home, I think it was a week and a half before my flight was leaving. And I didn't have a return ticket. I just got one one-way ticket. In my head, I was going forever. This was going to be my new life. I hadn't planned out. Actually, I hadn't planned out anything. I knew where I was going. And, and I thought it looked nice and it sounded nice and I didn't know anything about it. And I didn't even have anyone picking me up from the airport. So I told my parents about a week and a half before I left. And I was like, hey, yeah, so the reason I'm here is I quit my job and my career and uh, sold everything. And I ended the lease of my apartment and I sold my car. You guys can take me to the airport, yeah? <laughs> what did they react to that? I thought my mom was going to faint. I, <laughs> I actually, it was funny the way I did it. I had, I had actually just gave them the fundraising letter that I had been giving the businesses and let my dad read it out loud. <laughs> so he just got down halfway through the letter and was just like, uh, what? Is this real? You know, with this southern accent. My mom was sad, and that kind of made me sad as well because there was a sense of finality about it with you know not having a a way to get back and really leaving it very open-ended yeah i just knew i wanted to go see things and learn things and be a part of things that i couldn't because i found at my job all i was doing was working to get a bigger house a nicer car and i had 10 days off a year to enjoy it so right pretty standard yeah it was exactly and, and it wasn't it wasn't really lining up with my dream yeah, my, my mom dropped me off at the airport, and that experience, like getting to Africa, was, it was very harrowing, because I wasn't, I wasn't exactly sure, you know, it was like a three-part flight, it was going, I think I started in Houston, then flew to Chicago, changed planes, went to D.C., changed planes, and then I went to Rome, to refuel, then to Ethiopia, and then to Kenya, and then to Tanzania. And that was that was the flight. <laughs> and the first part of it was I had free airline miles, so I just I just went from you know to get to DC. Ethiopian Airlines does it's like uh, Washington DC is their hub. I I got to DC, stayed there for the night, because I got in it late at about midnight. I went there in the morning Sometime in the last, in the previous month or so, my credit card had gotten stolen and I got a new one. So when I went to sign in, I had my passport, I went to go sign in at the desk and I was scared as hell because I was about to do it, you know, it was like that butterfly feeling and they said, this isn't the card that the reservation was made under, so we can't let you on the flight and the plane took off. I was really not expecting that for, you know, for being someone that was that was a little bit scared of what was about to happen. That really was hard for me to stomach. I, I was like, I, you know, I was already like digging into my money because I had to get a hotel and I had to be on the phone with them and my bank. I have a three-way party call with with my bank and them and so they could verify that it was me and I the next flight didn't leave till like 8 a.m. the next morning so I had to get a hotel it was funny because you know the way things work right like I I didn't want it to happen but the way that it worked out kind of changed the trajectory of the start of my trip 
And so I walked from the airport. I, you know, I wasn't trying to sink money into taxis and all that stuff. So I walked from the airport to the hotel. It was about a three and a half mile, four mile walk. And figured that if I was going to, you know, be without a car and have a backpack, I might as well get used to walking a long way with a backpack. So I was walking and I came across this Pakistani restaurant. And I went inside the Pakistani restaurant, and there was no one else eating there. And I never had Pakistani food, so I was like, let me try some Pakistani food. Turns out it's very similar to, to Indian fare, to northern Indian food, as you would imagine. But the guy that worked there, he ended up sitting down and talking with me. And he told me these, these 10 life lessons. Like, he sat down, and he, and he had this real heart-to-heart talk. I ended up being there for two hours or something, and he, he told me 10 life lessons about what to prioritize and what to not prioritize. And one of his points was to go and, and taste all the fruit that you can, right? And, and indulge yourself in all the activities that you can when you have the opportunity. And I found that to be very calming for me. I was starting a travel blog and I you know, went home and I went back to the hotel and got out my little laptop and I remembered them at the time. I don't remember them anymore, unfortunately. Um, I I remember a couple of them, but I wrote them all down, and I thought, maybe this will be okay. And when I left in the morning, I got to Ethiopia, Addis Ababa. That was, you know, my first time in Africa. I was going through customs, because the way that they had organized the flights were that I had to stay overnight, in Addis, which was, I was not expecting that because we were a little late and it just didn't hook up. So the next flight was coming in the morning. So I had to stay another night, but I met a guy that was actually a native of the town I was going to in Tanzania. His name was Henry and Henry was from Moshi, Tanzania, which is where I was going to be staying. And he helped me you know, through and then he actually, he, he was in commodities trading or something to where he was a businessman and, and he was just coming through and he got a real kick out of me being scared of going there. And so he kind of slapped me on the back and took me around Addis and we went to eat some Ethiopian food, which by the way is the best food in the world. Yeah, I'm a big fan and, of myself. Um, and, you know, he drove me around and we stayed in the hotel there. The airline actually put us up in this hotel. Um, Ethiopian Airlines, by the way, good God, they... They served me like three square meals, and it was awesome. I, I it was my favorite airline I've been on. Actually, Turkish Airlines is really good, but Ethiopian Airlines. You think you're like Ethiopia? What kind of luxury do they have? And and then you ride the airline, and you're like, I'm still full from the last meal, but go ahead and feed me again. It's free. <laughs> Meanwhile, in in you know United, United States Airlines, we're like, you want to recline your chair? That's two dollars. Right, right. <laughs> so. That was really cool. But I, I got there to Dar... Or, well, I was, so it's Kilimanjaro Airport, which is kind of halfway between Arusha and Moshi. It's like a hub for safari tourism because mm-hmm. um, a, a lot of those go out of, out of Arusha. But Moshi is right at the foot of Kilimanjaro. So it's kind of like a central part. And I remember landing there, and I actually didn't... I just knew that someone was going to be meeting me there. And I had these two people with a sign that said David on it and it was Selma and Leonard and so it's the driver of the organization and the she was like kind of an assistant for the organization and they gave me a hug and and it was really welcoming as soon as I got there we were driving out of the airport which 
was the first airport I've been on and without that was outdoors. It was a big airport, but it was all under like a awning rather than enclosed in like a terminal. We were driving down and there was just people walking their goats on the side and all that stuff. And I was like, what, what is going on here? <laughs> like I just, I didn't even have a place to stay that night. I didn't think that's how, that's how limited my foresight was. I was just, I was just like, Swinging okay, it. take me somewhere, drop me off in town. They're like, we, you know, we got you, uh, we reserved some space for you at, at this place called Hostel Hof. It's just a, a little hostel. We, I, we're going to be there for a week, and then you can, you know, by that time, find different accommodations if you want or whatever. That's how it started. It was it was very tumultuous, and but at the same time, it was I was eased into to Africa, very welcoming. So, what was the uh, acclimation like the first month that you were there? The first night. So, Hostelhof is. It's set up like a volunteer hostel. So most people that stay there, it's like a minimum two weeks stay. And most people that stay there stay two weeks to two, three months. So it's not like a normal backpackers hostel. Yep. And I kind of showed up and everyone was like friendly. The first guy I talked to was, uh, he was from Belgium. And then there were a couple of girls from the UK, girl from Ireland, guy from... New Zealand, so it's just all these expatriates, pretty much. And I remember that first night, I was at that point, I was in a bunk bed, and it was two thirty in the morning, and the the rooster started going. And I and I was like dead tired after what, like fifty some odd hours of traveling, and and I just woke up. And I was really, my time, my time zones were all off. I was really jet lagged and the rooster started going at 2.30 and then like I checked my, my little, um, watch and it said 2.30, but I was like, did the time change or, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't, I was really confused. And then like this huge militia of policemen just started like marching down and yelling and doing like some kind of training down the middle of the street and everyone else was asleep. So I guess it really was 2.30 in the morning and, and and then the sun came up at like right after five and that's when everything got started. Getting acclimated was, was a really tough, I was not, I was not used to, it was very sun up to sundown type of thing like that. In fact, Swahili time is based off of the sun in terms of what we call midnight or 12, like the beginning of the day, is at 6 a.m. So at 6 a.m. normal time is 12, and it goes 12 to 12. So one sa modia, which is which is one o'clock, is actually 7 a.m. and so forth. Okay. And then so then the day ends at 6 p.m. because it's like right on the equator. So it's very give or take 15 minutes. The sun's either rising or setting mm-hmm. during that time. So I was that took a little bit to get used to, and then even just at the place where I was volunteering at Amani Center, there was no sense of time. And I learned that really quickly. No one is in a hurry to do anything. And there's actually, they sell like little tourist bumper stickers there, no hurry in Africa is, is like a saying there. So we would have a meeting scheduled at eight. You could show up at eight if you wanted to. Meeting didn't start till everyone was there. So like 9.15, 9.30. <laughs> Last guy rolls in, and, and then we sit around and have 
tea and talk to each other, ask questions, spend 45 minutes on what would have been like a single email back in the, the States, and all of a sudden it's 4 o'clock. The kids had been sitting in their school chairs for the entire day with no teachers because we were at a teacher meeting. And we were like, stay later, like to 5 or 5.30, and then we adjourned. And that was every Monday. And I couldn't figure out, I was like, what are we doing? Where's like... And so, like, my, my American productivity mind was like, what? This isn't even necessary. We could have, like, 15 minutes would have been too much for what we discussed today. Like, you know, who wants to clean the bathroom? And everyone's <laughs> like, well, you know, I think that this, and we need to get the kids in. And then finally the janitor's like, I'll do it. <laughs> so it was very, it was, that, that part of it was intense. Also, there's no internet, right? And that was one of the things that was really exciting for me because as much, this is even, this is 2010, 2011, like it was already ubiquitous at that time. So getting out of, it's really hard to, in the States to just remove yourself. Even though if you're like, I'm just going to like delete my Facebook, you're still like on that constant connection. Yeah. Um, You have your phone. You have your phone, you Google thing, whatever. So we had an internet cafe that was, I mean, it wasn't far. It was like a five or 10 minute walk. You paid per 15 minutes and it was like 10 cents for 15 minutes it was it wasn't expensive and it was the slowest internet i was gonna say it probably didn't have 5g down there no i didn't i don't even know if it was 2g i I eventually learned with my travel blog to like write everything and get everything in order and then go to the internet and it would take like the full hour just to upload the two or three pictures and you know, get everything situated and say hi to people, like respond to emails. And I, strangely enough, I did. I was still doing fantasy football during that time. <laughs> <laughs> and I was trying to follow the Cowboys. That was the year that Tony Romo broke his collarbone and they started out one and seven. So I was like, oh, I'm, I can sit this one out. Yeah, <laughs> so, I'll just be in another yeah, country. At the beginning, I was asking people, and I was like going there. I was like, I have to look at all of this game reports and everything like that. <laughs> and I was like, I have better things to do than spend four hours doing that. Or, you know, there, there's just, it's this whole vibrant world of not technology that is, is really uh, engrossing and you get a real sense of community also. And, you know, part of that was because I was white and it was, Moshi was big enough to not be 100% tourism, but because of, like I said, proximity to Kilimanjaro and everything, they definitely know what a foreigner is and what's not a foreigner. Mm-hmm. And there is even a word for it. It was, it was Mzungu. And it's, it, it's funny being on the other end of that, right? Like it's just people calling you Mzungu. It makes you feel different because you're you're a white dot there. When you have people like kids, would just like they just poke their heads out of the windows and yell Mzungu, Mzungu, and I was like, is this what it feels like to be black in America or something like just like people like constantly noticing your race? That was one of the first lessons I learned is like trying to not get. You know, I eventually learned it was it was uh, a name that I think meant Magic Man because when the the British came uh, during colonial times. They had like all this crazy stuff that the locals had not seen before. So the name Zungu stuck. It's kind of like a what's that like gringo type of thing. Yeah. And it just it just stuck. So everyone was Zungu. Wasn't a derogatory term. It was it was a descriptive term, but not a derogatory term. It wasn't like a you know like some words we use here where like is is a 
a word from the oppressor to describe other people. It was more just a, hey, we didn't have a word for you, but now we do, <laughs> type of thing. While you were there, I'm curious what the cost of living is like and what were the traditional conditions that you saw a lot of people living in? So I lived like a king at Hasselhoff. I told you I lived in a bunk bed with six other people. I eventually, after I'd been there for a couple months, I got seniority in the hostel and they have this tent. It's like a safari tent outside. It's got it's got a little light bulb in it and it has like a dresser and you know, a bed with mosquito nets. There's another setup, like an equal setup at the same so there's two beds, two dressers. I like made claims on that. So I lived out in this tent for over a year. It was kind of awesome because every night it was fun. I have this little stash. I don't know if you see those like those baby bananas. Mm-hmm. They're not so we'd have like that was the kind of bananas that were mostly grown there, but we would grab a banana and wait at nighttime and then we'd hear rustling and then we'd get our flashlights out and we'd go outside our tent flap and we'd there's just like all these pygmy African hedgehogs <laughs> and so we'd feed them bananas. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and they they'd roll up in a ball and go <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, it was really fun, and then every morning we got woke up because the sun. So living in a tent at the equator is miserable for that. Like, I can imagine. It's, it's like it was a dark. It was like that dark camo green color, and we had a sunshade over it. But my God, like by seven o'clock you were you sweat out. Like you had to leave <laughs> leave the tent, and we had this. There must have been twenty or twenty five collared lizards that were like. Bearded dragons. Uh, some of them were, can't remember what they were called. Sort of an A, like a Zuma or something like that. But it was like a red head and a teal blue body, separated by like a little collar around their neck. They would just hang out on our tent, and all morning long they just shuffle from one end to the other. And all, and at nighttime we found they just hung on our mesh um, windows. So the windows weren't like plastic, right? They were just mesh. And so the, the lizards just hang there. You could pet their bellies. <laughs> and so that was that was really cool. But that was different. And so my cost of living there, I got two meals a day. And the security, so there's a security guard everywhere, right? We had a Maasai warrior named Sinity. He was a really cool dude, but he just hung out there. Basically, in these compounds, it was you kept other Africans away. It was interesting because you didn't want to speculate on why it was doing that but it was mostly people you know when you have like an iphone the the gdp in tanzania was when i was there like 650 dollars a year wow. so you have an iphone that cost 800 dollars. people are just like cash everyone like in this white person foreigner compound has iphones and laptops and africans tanzanians really develop like infatuations with with western women they would be like hanging out in trees and stuff like that and i heard i heard lots of stories it was never an issue for me because you just don't be dumb and i never took anything with me anywhere so that part of it was really easy but then you'd have people that were like just new there and they i did there were several people that got um held up with a machete at their throat and it was just give me this thing that will give me more money than I make for the next year right, you know right. like if you're going to be carrying those around I got burner phones when I was there like just these you go to the phone store they're great they're like the T9 texting and they their battery lasts for like six days you could throw them against the brick wall and they'd still, <laughs> they'd be, be fine and so that was that was great 
you paid for your little cell phone, which was maybe five bucks a month, or you know, you paid by minute there, per text and per minute. Where I lived, I offered them a deal. I, I like making deals, and which is another reason why Africa is great, is because you can make a deal with anyone. But I offered the people a deal, and I was like, hey, if I just, I think it was $22 a night or something, which is really expensive for there. I, um, I told them, I was like, if I just give you all the money up front, can I just pay for like the rest of the year? They talked about it. Yeah, so I got like a 40 or 50% discount. So I ended up paying like 10 bucks a night for two meals and a place to live with friends like around all the time. So right, it was, right. was kind of awesome. My friend Andrew, who worked with me in Amadi, he, he lived in like a house, right? Like he, he lived in more of a homestay type of thing and he paid, I think, $70 a month for his own room it's not new york city not new york city <laughs> but yeah i mean he had to take bucket showers and which i did eventually so i was i was at amani for for about eight months and then i went to uganda for a bit and came back to southern tanzania and worked with a different organization in that place i lived with the physical therapist at the it was a center for deaf and disabled people so they had a physical therapist and I stayed with her and her family and that was like bucket shower ride three miles uphill on a bicycle to to get there and that sort of life <laughs> and it was different you stop caring and it's not a problem mm-hmm. and it was like the nights would be like 45 50 degrees you'd go outside cold fill buckets with water put them on the fire then mix it with the cold water again so it made warm water and then take a little cup and pour it over yourself some some days it was you know too cold to bother but the amount of dust you were having on your skin it was always a good idea to to shower all the time yeah cost of living there's a restaurant Sikh Union top of the best Indian food I've ever had in the world and it was 350 or four dollars for a meal and they play field hockey the Sikhs would play field hockey um, outside of it and it was great and at this time, you know, I'd saved up money for my previous job. I left, I left the United States with nine thousand dollars. I did. I climbed Kilimanjaro. I did two safaris. I traveled around wherever I wanted to go. Guest house. If you just travel somewhere, you can stay in a guest house, which is essentially like a three-room hotel. Like it's just someone that's opened up like their guest house, kind of like a bed and breakfast, but mm-hmm. like a, a really crappy one. And you know, usually it's just. A bed with a mosquito net and then sometimes you'll have a little squat toilet in your room sometimes you have like a community squat toilet never western toilets those are only at the fancy places and those would cut those would run you about a dollar or two dollars a night it's liberating to travel like that it's liberally it's like liberating to be just having that backpack on your back sometimes it's scary right because you don't want to lose stuff and you know you feel a little bit vulnerable that if anything were to happen like I I had a kind of a a crazy story where this this girl wanted me to show her pictures she wanted to show me her like trips pictures on my computer and her little thing she had picked up 
malware somewhere. So both of our, like her thing got erased, her little HD um, memory card got erased and my hard drive got erased and I lost all my pictures. So I still don't have any pictures from that whole first year in Africa. Oh and man. It sucks. And then I, we did get some, we went, we went on a, a trip to Mombasa in Kenya, me and my buddy Andrew and his camera got stolen on the way back. So it's like they were really fate was against the idea of us having pictures of which is which is also cool because it makes for good stories yeah well then you have the verbal that you can tell people and then in your mind you can remember all yeah this stuff. it was it was way cooler in my head than i'm sure it was at the time so. right with all this said uh give me a great story from the time that you were down there i'll go ahead and and talk about that trip i just mentioned um with andrew to kenya we worked at you know this children's center they get a week off during the holidays or whatever, it's called Lakizo. And we were planning for like a month of where we're gonna go for Lakizo. We had this map, I was the library manager, that's what job I ended up having as a library manager, but we looked at this map and we had our really old lonely planets and, and were not really sure where we wanted to go, but we had heard about this island called Lamu, which is right off the coast of Kenya the buildings were built in the 1400s and 1500s. It was an old Muslim slave trade island. But there's the cool thing about it is there's no motorized vehicles allowed on the island. You get there by ferry, you get around by foot and by donkey. We're like, that sounds like it's a lot of fun. We took a bus and went over, I think it was about eight hours or something. We went over to Lamu and we decided that for boys night, we're going to just make our decisions based on the flow of everything. Like, and we were gonna make things happen for us and get into interactions with people that we wouldn't normally. Because in the States especially, you don't, it's weird to say hi to everyone you pass. It's weird to strike up things, you know, with people you don't know. You know, it can be like a little bit of small talk, but it gets, it can be awkward. But we're like, let's just get ourselves into trouble and see what happens. So. We're walking from the ferry. Uh, this is actually in Mombasa. Mombasa is, I think, the second biggest city in in Africa or in uh, Kenya. It's the city where there's that that scene from the movie Inception, where they're like running around through the alleyways, like at the very beginning of the movie, and there's like you know chasing them. That's that's in Mombasa. But so it's a big city. But we were walking and we saw this this guy with red hair, and we just said, hey, you know, he's the one other foreigner that was there that we saw. And he came over and started talking to us. His name was Jan, and he was from Germany, and he was like a journalist, an aspiring journalist, and he was covering this group of fire-spinning street artists, and they were going to be doing a show at this $500 a night resort in Kenya. And we're like, whoa, that's awesome. And then he's like, you guys, um, it's at this hotel or whatever. And I was like, okay, cool. About 10 minutes later, I was, Andrew and I were talking, we said, we should just go there and see what happens. Because we didn't get the formal invite from Jan, but he seemed like he wanted us to go there. Like we had a good time with him, so we we found this this big resort. There was like an ice sculpture, and granted, you know, we've been pouring buckets of water on ourselves to take showers. So we're like for the last year. So there's like this hundred foot buffet spread, and like and like actual Mercedes and like all this stuff rolling up, and it's like some kind of big dinner gala thing, and this huge security guard stopped us and was like, you guys, do you have your, you know, your ticket? And we're like, 
no, but we're here with the fire-spinning street artist. And he said, what do you do with them? And we said, Andrew was the art teacher at Amani Center. So he said, we are their body painters. So, <laughs> so he said, okay, go ahead and go in. So we went in and Andrew had paint. And then we convinced these guys to let us body paint them. <laughs> So we're over there beside the stage, like in the kind of the back, they have the little performance area, and we're beside it painting these these guys that were spinning fire. It, we, it actually ended up looking really cool, and they were really stoked, and they wanted us to like follow them everywhere <laughs> to all their to all their gigs. They wanted us to go that, but and then we left that and we went to a casino and gambled a little bit and walked it into a pier, and this like crazy ship started coming down where we were at the casino it looked like there was a party on the ship and it just stopped at the pier that we were on and we just walked onto it because that's what you do when you're in boys night mode we walked onto it and everyone's just having fun there's like you know the little tea lights or strands of lights everywhere all over the thing and they just like pulled off again we found out that it was like a kenyan pop stars music video filming where I, I, I didn't even know his name. Like it was just one of those things where they were they had the film crews on there, so we were just like dancing with people, and I was pouring champagne on people. <laughs> and, it was, um, and it was that. So we and then we got back and and when we made it to, we were in Mabat. That was all in one night. And then we made it to Lamu. The next day it was another four hour ferry ride. We made it to Lamu, and it was so peaceful there so we decided we were going to stay away from like the beach area for that time because uh, that's where everything was congregated this these really like narrow winding stone walkways with uh, there was a good amount of tourists but not too many and just a bunch of donkeys we went across the island we bisected the island rather than staying on the coast and we we met an old man that was uh he was a farmer and we spoke Swahili at that point we were both fluent in it and so we were talking to him and he introduced us to his his son and his new daughter-in-law and they he just gave them a cow for their wedding anniversary or for their wedding gift and they were all hanging out outside underneath this mango tree and we share mangoes together fresh mangoes and they tell us you know where to continue on and where the best part of beach is that that no one knows about we just kept going straight with giant sand dunes. We finally, it was, sand dunes are really hard to, to climb if they are a very big incline and you <laughs> are not prepared for it. But we, we scrambled to the top. It must have been, I'm talking 200 foot oh, wow. uh, that's sand a good, dune. That's yeah. a big sand dune. And we got to the top of the sand dune and it was just completely isolated turquoise water for miles in, in both directions and it was no one was also on the beach except for uh there was a random camel and we weren't sure why the camel was there but we you know we got to hang out on that beach and that was kind of that sums it up is that idea of really going off the beaten path and making your own choices it's kind of a choose your own adventure thing and, and really pushing the non-obvious choices and we did that we had those boys and nights after it was such a success. We had boys and nights all the time, and we've got stories for days about those. <laughs> Having adventures like that, uh, it seems like it's just quite a culture shock. Some of the things that uh, that you've talked about, what the differences is from the people 
and the customs there. What was the what would you say that the biggest takeaway was as far as difference between living there and and a person living there and a person living in the United States? Happiness. It was, I think, just so much more easily attainable in Tanzania. You'd you'd come across people that had nothing. You know, they're having dinner on a dirt floor with uh, a set of three or four plastic plates that they reused. They were so happy. And if you walked by, you'd hear people call out Karabuni, which means like you guys are welcome here. So we got invited into dinner all the time. I got invited to people's dinner all the time. And you, f- you see that the things that we, you, I don't know if you've heard of the like, first world problems or like yeah, said, yeah. It, it, it's, it's so true. We worry ourselves with the most trivial things here. When I was there, eventually I lost that. I, lo- I, I, it, I became very, I was already a, like a laid back person, but man, it's, it's really infectious. The guy that we climbed Kilimanjaro with, we met him at a bar because we like saving money, right? So we don't want to go to a guide agency. We just <laughs> find a guy at a bar that tells us that he can climb a mountain. That sounds safe. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, and I, I still am Facebook friends with this guy. His name is Ignis. When I met him, he was, I think, 19 years old. And he was just the porter, actually. But he was such a nice dude. And he, the way the education system there is set up, they give you your basically entrance exam to to the second part of high school uh, in English, and they don't teach you English though, and they teach it incorrectly, as I found out as a teacher visiting other schools, and so they give you this like awfully worded, terrible, convoluted test that, as an English speaker, I had trouble with. As a college-educated English speaker, I couldn't do it. If you pass it, you don't get another shot, or if you fail it, you don't get another shot. When he was 16, he was really into geology. He didn't, he didn't pass the test. He was like, you know, two points off of the passing grade, and he was like banned from school. I, you know, got into talking with him about rocks, and that's why he wanted to be a mountain guide. After we got back from Kilimanjaro, he invited me to hang out with his family. And so I was like, sure, that would be awesome. He said, you can invite whoever you want to. So I, I invited a couple of the people that lived at, at Hostel Hof with me, and we went over there. It wasn't close. It was 20, 25 minutes away. But we got there, and he had it like such a welcoming setup for us. He had Cokes and sodas for everyone. They had made dinner, and he had a old tube TV playing Celine Dion music videos. <laughs> He's like, do you like Celine Dion? Because I love Celine Dion. <laughs> and I said, man, Ignis, I love Celine Dion. And so we were watching Shania Twain and Celine Dion music videos. I don't know where he got that. You find lots Contraband. Of, yeah, you find lots of like crazy CDs for sale on the streets. He took. I met his grandma, his mom, his like his nephew, his brother. He showed me. He had made like a fake volcano that had like a drawing of a dinosaur on it telling me about how dinosaurs you know ruled the earth at one time and i was like man this was for someone who doesn't make a lot of money to to buy he had bought like 15 or 20 sodas for us and to give us their food and and he took us on a little hike around his neighborhood and we really got a good look at this time i had i Later, I did stay in more of like the community. Um, I was closer to town at Hostelhof, and it was 
I was surrounded by people who could speak English, so it was it was a lot easier that way. But seeing how happy this dude was, and like the again, their floors were they had dirt floors, very simplistic way of living compared to what I'm used to. But man, they had Celine Dion videos. That was it. That was the that was That's their the pinnacle. Ticket. Yeah, that was that was the bee's knees. Is is the the key to happiness is is just finding those little things. Whereas we have access to everything. You know, now as I have two kids, I wonder about that all the time. How can they ever experience the feeling of not having something and then having it? You know, having one thing that is special. Things that are special are fewer and far between. I feel like. And that might just be me being jaded and cynical now, but when I, you know, I, I taught high school for a while and I saw that all the time, you know, like it's, 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 there's no more researching in libraries or anything like that. It's just Googling something. And so everything is instantaneous. So there is no f- feeling of being without unless it's just like the latest video game or the latest whatever. And you can just go to the store and buy it. Yeah. Because there's a, a Walmart or something yeah, it's within there. 15 minutes of it. It's yeah. there. So you walking around and seeing the kids uh, in Moshi, they'd have like a string attached to a water bottle that had toothpicks pushed through it and uh, paper wheels on it. And that was like a car. These, and they were, it wasn't like a two-year-old. It was like six-year-old. You know, and they loved it. And at the, at the library that I worked at, the money center, like we had a computer lab with two or three computers and we had like 15, 20 second videos and they went apeshit for those things until I left, like for the full year, like everything, like, let's show me that one video. Ah! <laughs> and, and, but it, the, the double-edged sword is that you see that creeping in and you see that creeping, that part of, I guess, consumerism and capitalism creeping in. Cause I had, I would just be sitting there and sometimes kids, you know, they're, they're very, it's a, it's a touchy-feely society. So, like, when you walk down, if you're friends with someone, uh, even two males, you hold their hands. Homosexuality is illegal, but you hold hands when you're talking to another male in, in, a, close, in a close conversation. And I would have, you know, the kids that I was teaching, like, would it be recess? They'd, they'd be, like, hanging on my arm or whatever, and they'd say, like, I wish I had your color of skin. Or I wish, like, one kid was like one day I'm gonna get a laptop like you and I was like it made me feel bad you know it made me feel bad for exposing people to it because it's just one more thing right and you know Mm -hmm. when when colonialism ended in Africa Africans were put on the world the same world stage that everyone else was they weren't before but they were just thrown into this world economy that they had previously not been a part of and now they're like 250 300 a thousand years late to what the rest of the world is doing but they're expected to be on the same playing field those things are it's crazy like that they, they skipped landlines in tanzania they went straight from nothing to cell phones like so the rate at what i don't even you know i haven't been back there since 2011 i'm hoping to be back soon you know ignis posts on facebook a lot more than he used to he posts pictures a lot quicker so i you know technology is is getting there really quickly but there was on a ferry ride across lake victoria and i had a overnight bunk mate there i was on my way to uganda and it was a middle-aged tanzanian businessman and and i was just talking because i was i was in the process of writing this like manifesto of tanzania right and i was called i was going to call it like sweeping dirt or something like that because they i noticed one of the things in, in like 
my astute productivity or productive mind of being an American. Like they would spend their mornings sweeping dirt floors. So I would just watch, I would just watch them and they just sweep and like backbreaking, like just bent over with these tiny brooms, just sweeping the street and it's dirt. Like there's just dirt everywhere. So I was going to call it sweeping dirt and just what, like kind of my initial thoughts of, of Tanzania. And I was telling him all these things and, you know, the plight of the education system, which I talked about a second ago, this guy was just like, in the most earnest way possible, he took my hand and was just like, and I didn't know him. I didn't even know his name. He's like, how do we fix this? How do we catch America? I thought for a second and I said, I don't think you want to. Like, I don't think that you have a good thing going here, right? Mm -hmm. Like you have a good thing going. And I wish, and even now, like I just, I talk about my time in Africa. I mean, I spent that, that time there and then I went back a second time. And I talk about my time there with this, place in my heart that like not few other things share and I don't know if it was it's like 90s music to me you know like I don't know if it's just one of those things that was like there when I was coming of age getting into that feeling of happiness and exploration and being a part of the world and being a part of a a community is something that I've struggled with since I you know came back it was there was like little things of coming back of just like oh the groceries prices aren't negotiable like you know I can't just randomly throw out a number because I think it's too expensive I can't do that but it was it was the other things it was the eye contact with people walking the other way on the street you know it was being cool sitting and waiting and enjoying something and not feeling like you had to go somewhere all the time that is something that is missing from me here now since I've been back that otherwise I would have not thought about you know mm-hmm. yeah that's really fascinating what would you say uh, is the thing that we could learn most from them with that from the culture there would it be slowing things down slowing things down yeah and uh, you know there's a reason why it was such a popular saying there's no hurry in Africa is because it's just a it's great to slow to just slow it down it'll be okay tomorrow there's no hurry in Africa. I remember being, my, my friend Jared came to visit me from the States. He was the only person that came to visit me from the States. And he's black. We were on this, I, I ran that dude so hard when we were there. We were just going and going and going and going because I had to show him everything. Like right. all this stuff that I had not had anyone to share with aside from my travel blog. I was like, we're going to go here and then we're going to go here. And we were on this 65 mile bus ride took eight and a half hours we stopped every hundred feet the entire 65 miles letting someone on someone off someone bring their chickens on and get off and he looked at me and he said i'm glad we had slavery so we got the hell up on out of this and i was (laughs) like jared (laughs) but he 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 was like he was hitting on that point of like there's a there's a happy medium right like this you want to be some like because we were supposed to meet our fin- friends from Finland that were like going back to Finland the next day and we were going to have dinner with them. We did not know the bus ride was going to be like that. The bus ride was going to be like that. Like it just took, there wasn't any traffic. It wasn't like that. It was just like intentional stopping because like no one has anywhere to be at any time. <laughs> and so, but, but it's, it's such a, aside from those things where you just abs- actually are relying on other people to get you somewhere, 
just the appreciation for the little things. We had the, the gatekeeper at Amani, or the gardener, his name was Petro. There's a marathon in Kilimanjaro where it goes up part of the mountain. It's a really famous marathon. He had run it for eight years in a row in church shoes. He had done the marathon in church shoes. I asked him why. He said, because that's what I have. It's just running, right? It's just running. When, I, when we, there's like a 10K associated with, with the marathon, and a lot of our kids that were street children that were with our organization, they ran it too. Like some of them ran it in one sandal, one barefoot in one sandal. <laughs> and they they beat, they're they beating adults. Like, and I was just like, you get, you get used to things. That's that's another thing you learn is you get used to things. If you, the longer you're in the cold, the better it feels when you're warm, right? Like you, you get used to things and you gain us another appreciation for life and the energies that flow back and forth between people and between things when you put yourself into a place like Tanzania or I would imagine like Vietnam or Thailand or places that aren't as connected as where we live right now. That's great. I uh, think that these are some great stories that uh, people will really see a different side of some other cultures that are, are not of our own and and this really gives us an interesting look into what it's like to, to go somewhere else and live a different pace of life, a, a big change of pace from the United States and everything that we have here. So uh, with that said, I want to thank you for uh, doing this interview with me, David. And uh, yeah, that's a wrap. Thanks for having me. So after doing that interview, I really feel like I have a better appreciation for the place that we live in, but also it really gave me perspective on what it's like to live in a third world country and how the people there see the gap between us and the United States as something that they want to bridge. And in the same token, there's people in our country that wish that we could go back to a simpler life. So there's quite a dichotomy in comparing the two of those things where we are so involved with all of our technology and televisions and iPods and everything that we have for technology and materialism. The people in Africa, on the other hand, have this very simple life and they aspire towards materialism, but they're happier in the state that they're in with not really having nothing, not having a lot of cares, not being on a schedule, not living the frantic lifestyle that we have. My guess is that they probably have less health problems as well even not always having access to the highest quality foods and things and living on a very scarce budget. So this is really fascinating to me to take a look into another culture and see what it's like to live in a third world country. And I think David's story really accurately portrays what the experiences that he went through and some of the personalities of the people that he lived with when he was there. So I hope that this sheds a little bit of light onto what it's like to live in a third world country and to make you appreciate some of the things and comforts that we do have here. And along with that, also look towards them for guidance in a certain way where there's some things that are going on elsewhere and the pace of life is a lot slower and there's a lot to be learned from that too so that's all i got for you for today look forward to the next podcast and uh, everybody have a great day mm-hmm.